Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. As soon as word spread that nine-year-old Don Hamilton had walked into the woods with a strange man, the search began. That's noteworthy because a lot of times in the 1980s, a child's disappearance was handled too cavalierly, too slowly. Police would tell worried parents not to fret, that the kid would just turn up. But something about the circumstances surrounding Dawn's story struck everyone as off straight away. Police arrived within minutes. Family members began scouring the area in and around the woods. A command post was erected to start organizing a search party. It was all for nothing. Dawn had vanished around 11 a.m. on July 25, 1984. That afternoon, a man in the woods found her jean shorts and underwear in a tree. Dawn's father found her still warm body minutes later. It was as shocking a crime as they come. This little girl hadn't just been killed. Her skull had been crushed. Shoe imprints showed that her killer had stepped on her little body. She'd been sexually assaulted and then violated further with a stick. Again, she was nine years old. It was, by any measure, a most horrid crime. On a hot summer's day in 1984, a little girl is found brutally murdered and sexually assaulted in the woods in Rosedale. The small community where this happened, about 20 miles northeast of Baltimore, was outraged. What kind of monster does that to an innocent child? Everyone wanted justice. They worried their kids weren't safe. Police had a tough case ahead of them. There were witnesses who had seen Dawn walk off with a man into the woods, but two of those witnesses were just children themselves. Dawn had been talking with two little boys, ages 10 and 7, near a pond when she was approached by the man. The boys said the man asked Dawn what she was doing. She said she was looking for a friend Lisa. The man offered to help find Lisa in the woods, and off the two went. The boys gave police a description of the man, about six foot five, muscular, blonde, curly hair, and a rendering created by a sketch artist did yield some tips, but police weren't sure which to pursue. So they asked the FBI for help in creating a profile of the killer. Armed with that, they winnowed the pool of possibilities to just one, a guy named Kirk Bloodsworth. Kirk was arrested, tried, and convicted. Authorities were relieved. The community celebrated. But there was a problem. Kirk was innocent, and his case would mark the first time in American history that DNA testing would reverse a murder conviction. When Dawn was born in 1975 to Tony and Thomas Hamilton, her parents weren't in a good place. Tony was just 17. Thomas worked odd jobs, mostly as an electrician, and the two weren't faring well as a couple. Neither felt like they could handle a child. Luckily for them, and for Dawn, there were other adults around with big hearts and open doors. 
Dawn was given to a family friend, a woman named Casimira, but nicknamed Mercy. Born in 1934, she was in her 40s when Dawn came into her life. Already a mother to four older children, Mercy Sponagle had been born in the Philippines and would dote on Dawn no differently than she would her own children. In 1979, the little girl would be a ray of sunshine during a spell of unthinkable darkness for Mercy, who lost her own teenage daughter in a car accident. The obituary for the teen says that that girl's nickname had been Angel. Mercy didn't outright adopt Dawn, though she was willing to. Dawn's father, Thomas, didn't want to let go entirely. Sometimes he would take Dawn for spells and then return her to Mercy as though they were an amicably divorced couple sharing custody. Normally, this arrangement worked out well for both of them. It just so happened, though, that a miscommunication on July 25th, 1984, meant that Dawn wasn't where she was supposed to be that day. The story, as relayed in a book called Bloodsworth by Tim Junkin, goes like this. Mercy had enrolled Dawn in a Catholic summer camp near Annapolis. The idea was that Dawn would get time to play with other kids, swimming in the river and learning how to canoe and sail. The camp started July 16th. Before camp, however, Dawn's dad Thomas had taken Dawn to Pennsylvania to see her grandparents. Mercy apparently thought she had relayed the camp schedule clearly to Thomas, and she thought that he took Dawn to camp after the grandparent visit. Thomas, meanwhile, claimed he'd never been told about this camp. He was crashing at some friend's apartment through the summer, and while he went to work, his friend Eleanor Helmick was watching Dawn and a few other kids. This is why Dawn was at an apartment in Fontana Village on the day she disappeared. It all sounds sad, like this kid slipped through the cracks, but to be clear, it sounds like she had a lot of people around her who loved her and looked out for her. And Dawn herself was headstrong and pretty self-sufficient for a nine-year-old. She was considered a leader in her Rosedale Elementary fourth grade class. Junkin relays that Mercy called Dawn Big Mama because she acted like one. She was confident and cheerful. She didn't have the most orthodox upbringing, but she'd been stable enough that she was trusting of adults, even strangers. The day that Dawn disappeared, her father had gone to work around six in the morning. He left her with Eleanor, who was also watching her two kids, four-year-old Lisa and six-year-old Gary, as well as her sister's two kids. Eleanor made the children breakfast, then told them to go outside to play. There was a field with a playground, though the kids weren't supposed to go into the nearby woods or anywhere near the adjacent pond. All five of the kids went outside around 10.30 a.m., though Don circled back after to report that two of the younger kids had gone into the woods. Eleanor told Don to call them back, and the children who'd been temporarily MIA quickly came home. But Don wasn't with them. Eleanor went looking for her. She found two boys near the pond that her crew of kids was supposed to avoid. The boys, 10-year-old Christian Shipley and 6-year-old Jackie Poling, knew Don and told Eleanor they had indeed seen her. She'd come up to them at Becky's Pond. This is Kirk later explaining. She asked and said, could you help me find my friends? They declined. They had just caught this turtle. They weren't really interested in that. But a man on the rise of a hill area, looking down at the scene of the two little boys, spoke up with the sun behind his head and said he would help her find her friends. Dawn seemed grateful. She walked off with a man. Eleanor grew alarmed. She went to the woods and called for Dawn, but got no answer. 
She went back to her apartment and called police at 11.49 a.m., barely an hour after shooing the kids outside in the first place. Then Eleanor called Thomas at work to tell him she couldn't find his daughter. Thomas, who had just begun his lunch break, told his boss what was happening and left work straight away. When Thomas arrived, he encountered a man in the woods named Richard Gray, who pointed up into the trees. That's when Thomas saw his daughter's shorts and underpants. Everyone knew at that point that Don was in terrible danger. Their fears were quickly confirmed. About 2.30 p.m., Don's body was found. This was a huge story for this area. I mean, uh, it's not every day a nine-year-old girl disappears and then turns up murdered. Tony Pipitone, an investigative reporter formerly based in Baltimore, speaking to the TV show The New Detectives. There were a lot of people out there. There was a lot of concern about who the killer was and whether they would find this killer. Police canvassed the area. Some had seen a man who at least vaguely lined up with the description the two boys at the pond had provided. He was a tall guy wearing shorts. Bits of the description varied, though, like his precise hair color. Some said it was blonde, some said brown. The colors on his shirt changed from person to person, too. But if you think about it, those discrepancies aren't surprising. How many of you could say with absolute certainty what your husband or wife or roommate had been wearing when they walked out the door this morning? Imagine having to remember that kind of detail about a complete stranger you had just happened to spot on the street. Of the two boy witnesses, the older one seemed more confident in his description. That was Chris, the 10-year-old. He worked with a sketch artist who used pre-existing templates to try and create a likeness resembling the man in Chris's memory. Chris couldn't deviate from the templates, though. So he might choose a set of eyes that were close, but if he tried to customize it a bit, like by saying the eyes were still a little bit rounder or closer together or what have you, the artist waved him along. It was possible to hire a freelancer to make those kinds of tweaks, but the cops felt a lot of urgency in this case. They wanted to create the composite as quickly as possible so they could release it to the public and get this killer off the streets. Chris said he wasn't totally happy with the sketch he'd helped create, but it was released anyway. It was deemed close enough. It showed a man with frizzy, tight curls, a broad nose, and a mustache. Based on the telephone calls it sparked, it looked like a lot of men in the Baltimore area. People called saying, hey, that kind of looks like my neighbor, or my boss, or my husband. Each tip should have been vetted, but not all of them were. For example, one tip came in about a guy who'd been driving around the area passing out free ice cream to children. He was weird enough that parents began warning their kids to stay away from him, but he was never investigated. Another tip suggested that this sketch looked sort of like a man who'd been suspected of raping children in the area. He had, in fact, been accused of assaulting two girls just weeks before Dawn's attack. Police jotted down the name of Kimberly Ruffner, but never followed up. Kirk Bloodsworth had heard about the murder near Baltimore. The news was impossible to escape for anyone in Maryland, and Kirk had been bouncing between the Baltimore area and his hometown of Cambridge, about 90 miles southeast on the other side of Chesapeake Bay. Kirk came from a long line of watermen, or men who worked the bay as fishermen, oystermen, crab scrapers, and trappers. His ancestors had immigrated to the New World from Scotland in the 1600s, and over the centuries since, it seemed like the salt water had seeped into their veins. 
Working on the bay was more a way of life than a way to make a living. Kirk had learned this from a young age. He started working the water with his father, tonguing oysters around age six. He started duck hunting even earlier than that. He routinely got muskrat traps from his folks for Christmas and had made a little business out of setting his traps before sunrise between January and March. Local businesses would pay $10 for black pelts and at least seven bucks for brown ones. He was a hard worker, but when he got exposed to a bit of the party lifestyle, he went hard at that too. He started drinking at 16 and smoking pot at 17. His parents enrolled him in a religious school from which he did graduate, but because it wasn't accredited, that didn't count for much. He didn't get a diploma for his efforts. After his pseudo-graduation, he joined the Marines, signing up for a four-year term beginning in the summer of 1977. He joined the track team as a discus thrower and was the all-Marine discus champion three years running. When he wasn't competing, he was stationed in Spain. After the honorable discharge that punctuated his tour, he returned home to Cambridge where he worked odd jobs, grew his ginger hair long, and made up for some partying he had missed while a Marine. One weekend in 1984, a buddy invited him to hang out in Baltimore. As Kirk later recalled it, We went to Hammerjacks in Baltimore. It was this bar that has like triple-decker bars and like five bands. And it's just like, it was all the rave back in those days. And he met a friend of his named Wanda. She jumped in the car and she looked at me and said, How are you doing? And I guess that was the end of me. I mean... I was, uh, I was really enthralled with her uh, right from the beginning. Wanda Gardner was 10 years older than Kirk. She had two kids from a previous marriage who lived with her father in Pennsylvania. Kirk's parents weren't exactly fans, as this great line in Junkin's book Bloodsworth puts it. Quote, Kirk's parents disliked her at first and then came to despise her, end quote. Over his parents' objections, Kirk and Wanda got married in April of 1984, just two months after first meeting. He later said he ignored two omens the day of his wedding. The first came when he was driving to the church. And I was so hungry, man. My stomach was just like, sounded like a bear. And I was looking around at the car for something, you know, and I looked up on a top visor and there was a fortune cookie. I grabbed it and I opened it up with my teeth, you know, at the bag and and just started biting this thing and pulled out the, the fortune and just put it in my lap. And I was chewing on this thing and I happened to grab it because the traffic was slowing down and I looked at it and it said, turn around. I should have turned the hell around that day. The second omen came during the ceremony. Kirk said Wanda was so stoned that he had to help steady her to keep her upright for the vows. Anyway, after the wedding, Wanda moved to Cambridge, but it was clear within weeks that she absolutely hated it there. She didn't like the waterman's life. Wanda wanted to go back to Baltimore, so she did, and Kirk followed her there. They'd just been married, after all, and he loved her. He figured he could find work he liked well enough in Baltimore, which was still a port city, still a water town. He hitchhiked to Baltimore over the 4th of July weekend and tried to make his marriage work. He found Wanda, then got a job. It wasn't an ideal setup. Wanda was living in a small two-bedroom row house with her half-sister and some friends. Adding Kirk to the mix made the already cramped quarters even tighter. 
He hoped the situation would be temporary, so he got a job delivering furniture at an outlet store called Harbor to Harbor. Kirk was the only one in the apartment with a normal day job. Most of the others were unemployed bikers prone to all-day partying. It was a tough environment for a married couple. The two shared a pull-out couch in the living room, so they had no privacy. Kirk didn't get much sleep because it was noisy, and on the rare occasions it was quiet, he was either worried or annoyed because that meant Wanda was out partying somewhere without him. Sometimes she wouldn't come home until dawn. It was during this spell that Kirk heard news of the murdered girl. He and Wanda were watching the news together when the black and white composite sketch flashed on the screen. And she turned around and looked at me. I said, what are you looking at me for? And she said, well, it does look like you a little bit. The black and white version maybe did resemble him a little, but as mentioned earlier, it also looked like a lot of other people. The full description wasn't so similar. Kirk was just shy of six feet tall, not the six foot five estimate given by the children witnesses. His hair also wasn't blonde, nor was his skin tan, as other witnesses had described the guy near Becky's pond. Kirk's Scottish heritage showed in his red hair and fair skin. Also, the suspect was supposedly tall and slim. Kirk was on the hefty side, weighing more than 200 pounds. Wanda wasn't serious anyway. Even though the two weren't getting along as swimmingly as newlyweds perhaps should, Wanda had been with Kirk the morning of the murder. It'd been his one day of the week off from work, a Wednesday. And the morning stood out because it started with Wanda's half-sister's cat peeing on Kirk in his bed. You don't forget a morning like that. Kirk laughed off Wanda's comment about the sketch, but the two weren't laughing about much else, and they were constantly bickering. While police were still searching for the killer, Kirk and Wanda had their biggest fight to date. Something clicked in him, and he decided his parents were right, though he was also humiliated at the realization. He went to his boss at Harbor to Harbor and said he felt too sick to work but needed his paycheck. He walked to a store to cash the check, then began hitchhiking home. He wasn't in a rush to get there and face all that, so he stayed one night in a motel. Along the way, he called Wanda's mom and said something about having done something bad, meaning leaving his job and wife behind, and Wanda filed a missing persons report soon after. Around the same time, the FBI had been asked to help create a psychological profile of the crime and perpetrator. It posited that the killer had been dominated by women his whole life, and his repressed rage had boiled over the morning of the attack. Dawn was chosen because she was vulnerable, an easy target, but she represented far more than just the little girl she was. She represented all women. Journalist Tony Pipitone again. The detectives had this profile done that said that whoever was responsible for this crime may have had an argument with a woman, a domineering woman in his life, may have been projecting that anger at that woman at this little girl. They said that whoever did this, according to this profile, grew up around the water because he was near the pond and where these boys were fishing and had gone to this pond as some kind of refuge in a troubled time. Amid the slew of tips police fielded in the days after Don's murder was one mentioning Kirk Bloodsworth. It was from an anonymous caller and logged as tip number 286. It seemed Wanda wasn't the only person who had sensed the composite sketch bore a resemblance to him. And three days after the killing, several days before Kirk hitchhiked home to Cambridge, his name went down on a list of people to check out. 
Soon after Kirk left town, a cop got around to calling Harbor to Harbor, Kirk's employer, to ask about him. The employee answered said Kirk had abruptly quit August 3rd, that he'd kept mostly to himself, and that he didn't have a car and walked to work. Investigators noticed that Wanda had filed a missing persons report, and they noted that this lined up with the psychological profile's prediction that the killer would be having problems with his wife, who had a noteworthy age difference. To be clear, Wanda never said anything pointing to Kirk as the killer. When police tracked her down for more information, she said he'd been with her the day of the killing, and that after that, he'd gone home to Cambridge. Police went there to track him down. They found him at a friend's house. He tried to go home to his parents first, but it just so happened that his folks were on a short trip. As he crashed with friends, he spent the rest of his paycheck on pot. He was high, in fact, when a Cambridge cop approached him on August 7th. Detective Mark Cottom knew Kirk around town, not from any previous arrest because Kirk had a clean record, but Cambridge was small enough and Kirk stood out enough that when Baltimore investigators asked for help tracking him down, it was no problem. Cottom thought Kirk seemed jittery, which he assumed meant that Kirk was nervous about being asked questions about a missing and murdered girl in Baltimore. In reality, Kirk had pot hidden in his shoe and was currently stoned. The conversation was brief, but it turned out to be just a prelude to an ambush the very next day. The interrogation setup that followed is astounding in hindsight. Police decided to try to elicit some kind of telltale reaction from Kirk by buying shorts and underpants similar to the ones Don Hamilton had been wearing when she was killed. They put those, plus a cinder block picked up from the police station parking lot, in the center of a table in the interrogation room. They brought Kirk into the room and watched for a reaction. He gave none, which meant he passed this sort of makeshift test they were secretly giving him. They figured that the killer would react strongly to the girl's clothes and the suspected murder weapon on the table, but Kirk didn't react at all. The detectives swept the decoy evidence away and focused on asking Kirk about where he was July 25th, the day Dawn was killed. And they kept drilling me and drilling me, and all I kept saying was, I didn't do it. I'm telling you, I didn't do it. No, I might not know exactly where I was right then and there right now, but I didn't do it. I know whatever it was, it wasn't killing a little girl that day. When detectives asked why Kirk had told someone he'd done something bad that would upset his wife, Kirk said, well, I'd actually told her I'd get her a favorite dinner soon, a taco salad. Instead of getting her taco salad, I quit my job and left her. From the new detectives. To police, the explanation was ludicrous. It was clear to Kirk that police didn't believe him, but it was just as clear they didn't have enough evidence to charge him with anything. He was sent back to his friend's house. Little did he know that witnesses were being shown his image in a photo lineup after he left. Though Bloodsworth was shorter That's and him. heavier than the boys had described, and his sure. hair was a different color, right. they picked him Thank out as the man they had seen with Dawn near the pond. He was arrested in the middle of the night. Images of a shirtless, disheveled Kirk being arrested and perp-walked in handcuffs played on the news. Several of the eyewitnesses, including ones who hadn't yet ID'd him in the photo lineup, saw him on the news before they ID'd him in an in-person lineup. If you know anything about ideal witness identification protocols, you'll know that these aren't that. Memories are too malleable, too suggestible. Letting a witness see a suspect in handcuffs on television before being asked to ID him in a lineup is putting your thumb on the scale in a big way. 
Even with multiple character and alibi witnesses in his corner, including his estranged wife, Wanda, Kirk was convicted in less than three hours. Later, he returned to court for sentencing. You know, one of the most uh, horrible feelings I ever had was when they sentenced me to death and the courtroom erupted in applause for my execution. When Kirk arrived to his new prison home, he was greeted by catcalls from other inmates, promising to do to him what he'd done to little Don Hamilton. Kirk wasn't sure he'd survive to see his execution date. It didn't take long for some problems with Kirk Bloodsworth's original trial to lead to his conviction being overturned. In 1986, his appellate lawyers managed to convince Maryland's highest court that the trial had been unfair, so Bloodsworth was tried a second time. This time, his hired attorney, as opposed to the appointed ones he'd used the first time around, ditched the character and alibi witnesses who had apparently done Kirk no good the first time around and instead focused on highlighting an alternate suspect. Richard Gray had been the man who had spotted Don's shorts and underpants in the tree near the spot where a body was found soon after. Gray had struck a few people as odd, especially because he had a balled up pair of girls' underpants in his truck at the time of Don's disappearance. His explanation was that he had found them in the woods and had a habit of picking up items like that to use as rags. But Kirk's lawyer thought it was odd enough that it should be highlighted in the trial. It didn't help dispel lawyer Leslie Stein's suspicions when he learned that Gray had been given a lie detector test that he supposedly failed. But by then, police had been adamant that Kirk was their suspect, so Gray wasn't further investigated. Jurors weren't convinced by this alternate suspect theory, though. They still believed the eyewitnesses and were confused by the lack of alibi testimony. I mean, surely, if you have five or so witnesses saying, I saw Kirk Bloodsworth at the murder scene that morning, it only made sense to have someone testify that he wasn't there. Unless, of course, he was guilty, right? Jurors took six hours to convict him the second time. Kirk's sentence was left to Judge James T. Smith, who wasn't as convinced by the evidence. Instead of sentencing Kirk to death again, he gave Kirk two life sentences, and he did something that would ultimately be key in proving Kirk's innocence. Smith put a box of peripheral evidence in the closet of his office. This box contained Don's shorts and underpants, among other things. Supposedly, these items had no biological matter on them, and as such, they likely would have been tossed in the trash after the second conviction. But because Smith had doubts, he'd held on to this box. Meanwhile, Kirk wrote letters from prison. He wrote presidents and governors and actors and activists. He read case law and stories about cutting-edge forensic science, specifically related to DNA. Well, at the time that Don Hamilton was murdered, there, there was no DNA technology uh, for, for all in, intents and purposes. This is Dr. Ed Blake, who ran a private lab in Northern California conducting DNA tests for criminal justice purposes. It's not that the science didn't know about DNA. Certainly, generally, science did know about DNA. It's just that the technology for doing work in a, in a forensic setting hadn't evolved to the point where that technology was, was useful in a, in a forensic setting. 
Kirk got a new lawyer named Bob Morin, whom he begged to have anything and everything tested for DNA. Morin wasn't optimistic because the FBI had said no semen remained to be tested. But when he learned of the shorts and underpants that had been spared by Judge Smith's misgivings, he sent them to Blake's lab. The lab found a small deposit of semen on the shorts, something the FBI had missed. The lab was at the forefront of something called PCR testing, a technique that amplifies small quantities of DNA so that even tiny amounts could be successfully analyzed. On April 27, 1993, nearly nine years after Dawn's murder, someone slipped Kirk a note in his cell that read, Call your attorney. Urgent. Kirk called Morin. Here he is describing that call. I wish you could hear him because he's very mild-mannered. He, but this time... He was screaming on the other end. Kirk, you're innocent, man. You're innocent. I know that. When are you going to get me out of here? FBI came through. And on June 28, 1993, I stepped out of the Maryland prison system in death row, a free man. This was two months, almost to the day after testing excluded Kirk. Some people still believed he was guilty. When he went home, he sometimes found notes on his car calling him a child killer. The prosecutor's office stopped short of saying he was innocent. They simply said the evidence that had convicted him was undermined by the DNA testing. Kirk wanted his name cleared altogether, and when he learned there was a DNA database called CODIS that could compare DNA samples from crime scenes with swabs collected from felons, he called prosecutors and asked that the sample from Don's murder be submitted to it. They said, Well, Mr. Bloodsworth, we can't do that. And I said, Well, why? We don't have the money. I said, Well, forget it. I'll pay for it. How much is it? Can't be that much. He said, well, we can't do that because that would be unethical because you're still a suspect. Kirk was livid. Every time I went to go talk on a talk show or talk in front of Congress about post-conviction DNA testing, they kept speaking up against me. He wanted his name officially cleared. He wanted to be able to speak about his case without the state casting doubt on his innocence every time he did so. Not only that, but he worried that the killer of this nine-year-old girl was maybe still walking the streets. Still, for reasons that have never been adequately explained, it took 10 years before the DNA was uploaded to CODIS. And what do you know? Once it was, it got a hit. Kirk was home when he got a phone call from prosecutor Ann Brobst, who'd been co-counsel against him in his first trial and lead counsel in his second. This was a woman who had publicly called him a killer and a monster. She told him she had some news about the case and offered to meet him anywhere in Maryland to tell him in person. He chose a Burger King. There, Anne and a couple of detectives told him they had gotten what's called a cold hit on the DNA in Dawn's case. It came back to a man named Kimberly Ruffner. He'd been accused of assaulting two girls about two weeks before Dawn was killed, though he'd been released for lack of evidence. About a month after Don's death, he was arrested in another case and convicted of attempted rape and murder. He'd been in prison ever since. The strangest part was, Kirk knew the guy. Not from the real world, but from the pen. Ruffner was in the same prison Kirk had been sent to the second time around, when he got life instead of death. And he slept uh, in a tier below me for... uh for several years and uh, never said a word. 
I gave him library books and uh, lifted weights with him in the yard. He would never look at me, though. And um, I, I never put two and two together. I guess it's a good thing. Ruffner pleaded guilty to the crime in exchange for having the death sentence removed as a possible penalty. When he entered his plea, he said he committed the crime alone, high on PCP. Kirk Bloodsworth had nothing to do with it, he said. Bloodsworth was awarded $300,000 in 1994 in restitution, but in 2021, Maryland passed a new law to determine what wrongfully convicted people should be paid after being exonerated. Kirk Bloodsworth appeared in person today as the state spending board, the Board of Public Works, approved additional compensation for the time Bloodsworth spent on death row and in prison. This is Jane Miller of WBAL-TV 11 News. Bloodsworth was released in 1993 after exonerated by DNA for the 1984 murder of a nine-year-old girl. The additional $83,000 paid is specifically for housing. Bloodsworth received more than $400,000 last fall, also under the new law named after exoneree Walter Lomax. Kimberly Ruffner remains in a prison in Westover, Maryland. research this case, I read Tim Junkin's Bloodsworth, the true story of the first death row inmate exonerated by DNA evidence, read and watched several of Bloodsworth's public speeches, and read contemporary news coverage of the case. A couple of quick additional notes. Because Steve Tipton was swamped with ObsessFest, the latter episodes of this season were graciously edited by Becca De Gregorio, who also edits Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. This episode marks the season two finale, which is also the end, for now at least, of awesome engineer Garrett Tiedemann's time with the show, and I want to thank him for being such a huge help and friend. Despite us never having met, we just chat through emails, and I talk to him in recordings. This weird, disembodied voice. I know we'll work together again soon, Garrett. I'm happy to say this is not the end of the series, though there will be a pause between seasons two and three because I'm writing Eight Crimes This Century's book, and I am but mortal and also have a day job and a kid. So bear with us during a break. We will return in March with all new case explorations. Thank you, everyone, for the support. No, I'm a really big fan of yours, too. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>